Kultur. Kultura. Kultur. Kultura. Culture. Kultur. Kultur. Welcome to the podcast Kulturstammtisch. My name is Eric Facon. Hello. Podcast with a German name calls for some explanation. This podcast started its life as a broadcast of Swiss National Radio, where the show ran for 10 years and some 450 episodes. And after a break of a year, we decided to go on as an independent podcast. Same concept, almost same people, same name. But then the name Kulturstammtisch, what exactly does that mean? A Stammtisch is a special table in a bar, a pub or a restaurant, a meeting place for those customers who would like to sit down with a beer and discuss matters, political, social and cultural with their friends or maybe also passing acquaintances. Think of the forum in ancient Rome of 18th century literary salons in France, of a baobab tree in Western Africa. Think of any place where people meet to talk, think, discuss and debate. We are a group of 50 people who love talking about culture, and sometimes we also have some guests. Culture in the broadest sense, like today's theme, is very different from what we do, usually where we're more confined to culture in a stricter sense. I've invited two guests for this edition of the show, two American citizens who live here in Europe. We'll start with Brandy Butler, contemporary arts performer and activist from Reading, Pennsylvania, originally living in Zurich now. Zurich, Switzerland, and Andrew Shields from the Department of English Literature at the University in Basel, originally from Detroit, arrived in Basel via California and Ohio. Now, Brandy, um, I suppose uh, you do follow events in the US like social and political events pretty closely. What are your impressions at the moment? Um. I said it yesterday to a friend. I said that uh, America is like the hot spot of the pandemic of fascism at the moment. That I think that it's a, it's the world is kind of on edge around this election because it represents a, a greater, uh, similar dialogue that's going around in different places, and so I feel like it has the attention of a lot more people than usual. And for me, of course, it's it's because it has a lot of things to do with the person that I am, all the different uh, intersections of my identity. Of course, I'm quite nervous about what this means for the future prospects of people like me and my family. Pretty strong words, Andrew Shields. Uh, I would agree that the um, current situation in the U.S. is uh, of great concern. Um, precisely in the terms that Brandy described um, about uh, the way that this election seems to be a choice between democracy and something that is very much not democracy, uh, whether we call it uh, fascism or authoritarianism or Trumpism or even just contemporary republicanism. But how do you keep informed then um, about these things that yeah, happen on the other side of the Atlantic? What's your source of information? Is it more relatives or is it media or what is it, Andrew? Um, I, when I first moved to Europe in the 90s, um, I was a bit at a distance from things, but I think the internet has made it easier to keep up with things and the Trump era has made it of greater concern to keep up with things. Um, so I read uh, the two big papers in the US, the Times, New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, I also try to read American reporting in the German press, so Süddeutsche Zeitung usually, or Republik in Switzerland. 
um, try to make sure I'm not just in my liberal bubble, bubble mm. right? Uh, um, and yeah, follow people who are of interest on Twitter and Facebook and keep in touch with my family and friends in the U.S. on Facebook. So that's sort of my information world. We'll uh, get back to those relatives and friends mm. that maybe keep you posted about what's going on. Brandy, what about you? How do you, how do you get your information? Um, I feel like it comes from all different sources. I mean, of course, relatives and friends, as, but I feel like that's the, the least is from relatives and friends. Um, I also read the New York Times every day. I have a subscription. And uh, I would say other than that, I feel like a lot of the impulse to look comes a lot through social media where I work a lot. In, I use this very much as a tool in my work. And so I find impulses quite often that lead, tell me to go investigate further. So, uh, yeah, I feel like it's a little bit of everything, but the internet is definitely the strongest source. We have the feeling that it all looks pretty crazy over there, all shook up. Um, we don't know. On the one hand, there is a president who says that all media is biased if it's not for him. Um, it's pretty strange. What do you hear from your relatives then? How, how, how do they feel about the situation, Brandy? Different people feel different ways. I mean, I have I have a, a quite a split family situation in that my dad is black American and my mom is white American. And so in the context of our family unit and my, my siblings and I, we're all fairly on the same, we're in the same bubble, let's say, or more or less. And uh, so I feel like from within my f immediate family structure, I hear a lot of worry and frustration and concern Um And then I have other family members who I've even distanced myself from as a result of all of this, uh, where I can see through social media that they also have worries and issues and concern, but more aligned with um, the right-wing values. What do you hear, Andrew? Brandy just alluded to some sort of separation of, yeah, of family members even, like uh, some sort of infighting over different opinions about the political situation. Do you get the same feeling too? Well, my immediate family, like Brandy's, is uh, all on the same page. Let's use a different metaphor. Uh, uh, all in the same bubble. My One of my sisters is a lesbian and has been um, active uh, in in politics around that issue for her entire adult life. Um And that's influenced all of us, uh, though my parents were in the civil rights movement in the 60s, so that also influences all of us. Uh, my mother's family um, has tends to be more to the right in general, though it's interesting to see two cousins that I have who are brothers, one of whom has been sort of pretty much apolitical his whole adult life, and he's gone gung-ho anti-Trump now. And will be voting in a presidential election for the first time in his life uh, mm. next That's month. That's an interesting point, huh? And his younger brother, who's a lifelong Republican voter, uh, their father was a kind of conservationist, old school, moderate Republican. And uh, he had gotten much more conservative, the younger brother, uh, with Bush um, and was not happy with Obama. But he's also uh, very disconcerted by Trump. Uh, mostly as a person, I think, more than his policies, which is a little bit puzzling to me. But <laughs> I understand. Well, the, th the thing is that in my family uh, in America, it's like this. Uh, a couple of my cousins 
uh, tend to avoid the theme of politics right now because um, one of them is pro-Trump and the rest is against Trump. And apparently uh, they want to avoid fights at family reunions because of that particular topic. But both of you have alluded to bubbles that we live in and to a sort of a division in society. Are we watching a, a society from far now where we both, both all, all three of us have roots over there? But are we watching a divided society as it as it never was before? What do you think, Brandy? I don't think the society wasn't divided. I think on one side, um, what I just, as you were talking before, what I was going through in my head is this idea of what is family. Mm. Like this for me is completely being redefined as like, who are the people that we choose to keep around us and feel like our, 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 our circle of care around us and why are they there? And is it, are we there, are they there because they actually care for us or is it there, are they there for us because we have a relationship by blood and does this matter if we redefine, if we change the definition of a proximity based on that? Like if, I mean, like I said before, I've chosen to step away from a, from my mom's sister because of her, the beliefs that she holds that run against kind of everything that I am as a person, whether it's queer or a person with ovaries or a, a black person, you know, all the things that she votes for really stand against my identity. And so for me, this, this question has been bubbling for a long time is what to do with these people that we've been told we should be bonded with, but actually we have no commonalities. And why should we continue to be close to them if therefore we have no commonalities? Andrew, I see you nodding. <laughs> um, I think th I, I like that expression, Brandy, the, the circle of care, right? Um, perhaps I would address that also in terms of sort of one, if one is active on Facebook, one cultivates sort of one's, one's community that one is interacting with of uh, family and friends from one's pre-social media life uh, and new friends that one might know only virtually. And uh, over the last four years, I've definitely noticed, you know, they're both people coming out already in 2015-16 with ideas that I find repellent um, and then uh, associated with Trump and the Republicans. And then uh, over the course of the past four years, um, um, people's positions shifting. And uh, there comes a point where I say to myself, I, I'm sorry, I have to cut this person off um, because it's it's it does damage to me it's uh to interact with them it's not don't want them to use your expression to be part of my circle of care but that feeling of division of the american society andrew um if you were to address that do you have a feeling that this is new at all or did it just come to the surface because of the current administration what would you say uh i don't think it's new at all i mean there's been a lot of uh reporting and and writing in the past few years about uh the pre-civil war situation in the u.s uh where the country was vehemently divided in all kinds of ways um obviously centrally around the issue of abolitionism and and pro-slavery people um and then even in the 1960s of course the 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 very negative polling around King, who is now seen as a, a hero by so many people, including quite a few right-wingers, but they were the type of people who despised him at the time. 
um, and there was a, there was a lot of division there. Um, it's uh, one of those things where where you know every few decades it appears that the the basic fundamental divisions in the U.S. come to the surface in a more explicit way, or maybe come to the attention of sort of the the rather narrow mainstream attention world, so to speak. Uh, um, and that's what we're, we've got right now, um, you know, fueled in the immediate sense by Trump, but more broadly by the developments of the Republican Party in the last quarter century. So it's more of a question of uh, Donald Trump and the political party behind him. I don't think so. I think uh, the rhetoric, I think for, for me, what it just exposed is that there just is a divide between people, which we already know this. I mean, there's a million books in the history of the world, which talks about the people who do this and the people who do this and how those people fight and eventually they get along again. And I personally feel at the moment that there's just this really strong, we're at this moment in time where we just really realize, what do we do if we don't get along? And for me, it doesn't matter. Like, I don't have a problem with other people having different belief systems. If someone doesn't like gay people, whatever, they can also not like gay people. For me, the issue, and I feel like what is so polarizing is that we still expect people, all people to have this decision about civil, civil and human rights for those other people. And that's why I think the pool became so strong right now is because the progression of like so many uh, oppressed groups have gotten so much more, I put that in quotes, but have come a long way in the last, let's say, 40 years in terms of the rights that they've been afforded in a public public room and that this is becoming more and more a conflict in a public space. And for me, I feel like as long as we uh, allow the right for all people to decide everybody's business then then this will only get worse for me there has this is just it's just pushing a a a hot spot button that is just waiting to explode in my opinion and i feel like that's where we are now where like it's at the point where it's so vitriol it's so contested these beliefs that we have about how one should live that it's uh just resurfaced in the way that's un, it's 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 no longer ignorable. It's no longer suppressible. Suppressible. I even feel for myself, like after these last eight months, I don't ever imagine myself going back to a place where I suppress my feelings around being treated negatively as a minority in a public space or in, a, in an institution. But I did for a really long time. Mm. We're talking about a polarized um, situation. Um, I want to get back to that point of the media. How far do you think that the media are responsible for this? Um, you know, like uh, the divide runs through the media in America as well. We all know that on the one hand, you have Fox News and then a couple of the others on the other side. Andrew Shields. Um, if you start with mentioning Fox News and then the other side, I mean, one of the things that goes on in the 1990s with the founding of Fox News um, was the explicit goal of duplicating what they saw as a liberal bias in the media with a conservative bias or a, a radical right-wing bias. Um, and for me, the, the, the distinction that remains is that if we say Fox News on the one hand and, and uh, New York Times on the other, is that the New York Times actually tries to to 
consider, I think the journalists who work there try to try to consider their own biases in their reporting and try to take them into account um, mm-hmm. rather than celebrate them, if you will, as the truth, which is what Fox News does. And Fox News will report, especially in their opinion shows, uh, will say things that are just have no grounding in any sort of fact. And the New York Times makes mistakes, but then they correct them if they make if they discover that the facts they've reported are incorrect. And as far as I know, Fox News never does that. So obviously, I I'm on the side of that the the media bias. Uh, if the if we want to use that expression in the U.S., is that the the well at least Fox News is 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 openly biased and proud of it, right? Brandy, what do you say? Role of the media in all of this? I don't know. I want to say that it's the media's fault. I feel like the media is like the Pied Piper in that sense. Like they're playing, you know, people, people, uh, not everybody is smart. Not everybody is educated. Not everybody has learned critical thinking skills. I mean, this alone, like learning critical thinking skills in school is, I feel like a concept of the last 25 years. So I feel... I, I don't know. I don't want to blame it on the media and I don't want to blame it on the people either. I feel like it's just the nature of, maybe it's for me more the nature of people being afraid, you know, and for good reason, because again, we are like, for people who, who want something, I, I personally feel like you should be able to live the way you want to live as long as it's not harming other people. Mm. You should be able to do the things that you want to do and have the beliefs that you want to believe. That's my personal feeling. But I feel like it makes a lot of people afraid that that can't, that won't be true. I mean, when we look at gun rights, we see this like people believe they need these guns for safety. I don't believe this. I don't need any guns. But just the mere threat of those guns being taken away, whether it's real or not, causes such a reaction of 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 hysteria almost in people. And so I don't feel like it's actually I feel I don't want to blame the news specifically because I feel like it's just a symptom of a mm-hmm. larger problem. I mean, I definitely see that they they are good at what they do. They're good at instrumentalizing people. But I mean, I also, as a grassroots organizer, I also instrumentalize people. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I for good, for good, I, I think. But I see that these, um, yeah, for me, it's not so simple to say like the media is the bad, Fox News is the bad guys. Mm-hmm. That's just maybe just a contribution to the whole thing, to the whole picture nationally, mm-hmm. because they um, multiply um some some sort of opinions that people might have what i get the feeling when i'm watching this thing about division um you get discussions about politics in america and it always seems to be a lot of shouting instead of discussing but how did we get there because uh brandy you rightly say that you are instrumentalizing people as well but you're doing it in a way you, you don't tap into people's fears to make them decide on life right i would hope not mm. I would hope not. I mean, I, I think, though, for me, it's uh, I think I instrumentalize hope, which is the idea that things can be better. And I, But I also believe that's what Republicans think in a way that they are the people who are voting in this direction. I also believe that's what they're being, what they feel is being called from them is like the hope that they can also have something better. Uh, the tactic is maybe the approach of it is different. For me, just in a reflective thought, what I do feel is very, very negative and instrumental in in this is uh, social media. That there's a, for me, there's one thing to say the rhetoric, and then there's one thing to create areas like uh, communities where rhetoric can exist. 
Because there you see like it, it builds and it reverberates out. And I, I feel like in 20 years, we'll look back at something like Facebook and be like, wow, that was really unbelievable how this this media so or like this this connective place let uh, all this negative rhetoric spin around amongst itself between people. This, I think, is super bad. Mm -hmm. So maybe Facebook is more important than the media in the end or social media in general. I I kind of feel like at the moment, social media in general is the much more important news source for most people. Like, I don't think people watch news so much unless unless they're taking it from their phone specifically. Like for me, the news is like a TV or it's the newspaper. And of course they have like Fox News and New York Times. They all, they all also work on social media as well, but they, you know, in much smaller pieces and much less, you don't get the big picture at all from something based on the way that they present it there, which is also the point. But um, I feel like most people get there, or most people I know, <laughs> most people <laughs> I know get a lot of their information or at least the impulse of information from social media. Andrew? Um, the particular thing that crossed my mind with both of your remarks in the last few minutes is something I just read uh, that was in the New York Times in the last few days was a, a piece by two political scientists who were surveying uh, a broad spectrum of Americans and said that um, that for a 15 or 20 percent of the population who they described as political junkies, there is this extreme polarization. Um, and then for most of the rest of the population who are not like avid followers of politics, um, they look at the political scene and see the kind of divisiveness and shouting at each other and so on and get turned off by it. And that's that's uh, something I think for traditional media uh, and for social media to, to, to be considering and for people who are political junkies, I guess I would number myself among them, uh, <laughs> that uh, you know, the, the vast majority in the U.S. don't want to think about politics that much and don't want to think about politics that way. Right. Um, there was there's one thing that I wanted to address, um, namely the United States of America as a, as a cultural force. We're taking a, a complete turn here in, uh, in direction of, of the discussion. But anyways, it's a thing that's been bothering me for a while because I think my parents who emigrated to the United States when they were young, they met uh, maybe a different country than uh, it would be nowadays. The United States was a dominant cultural force in the past century. We know all about the books, the films, the music, etc., etc., that have influenced Europeans to think that maybe the American dream was a possibility that it was there and that it lived in the United States of America and nowhere else. Yeah, what kind of images do we get nowadays out of America? Andrew? Um, the cultural images, you know, in terms of cultural products, like films and music and television, um, um, seem to me like they're more or less you know, continuing along the same paths that they've been on um, with perhaps a somewhat broader perspective at times. I'm thinking of something like Ava DuVernay's series, When They See Us, um, about the, the um, five uh, young uh, teenage African-Americans who were called the Central Park Five. Mm. Um, but, you know, how much does that actually get to sort of uh, influence the 
the broad reception of American culture uh, around the world, right? It's still dominated by the sort of the big pop figures, right? Uh, and the big blockbuster movies. But do your friends still buy into that? I mean, I'm talking about your Swiss uh, friends now. My my Swiss friends. Yeah, I like the American think, dream as a concept, you know. I think uh, insofar, I'm not sure whether I've talked to them about that particular concept, but certainly um, over the past, uh, I've been in Basel for 25 years now, and, and um, I think that... Uh, It ebbs and flows again a bit, but certainly there have been multiple periods where the Swiss that I talked to were incredibly skeptical about the U.S. and developments in the U.S. Uh, while still being great fans of American cultural products. <laughs> Brandy? Um, I think that um, American culture as as a... A leader of of world culture, I feel like, or Black American culture as a leader of this, I feel like that's still very, very prevalent and and is not bucked in any way. And then I still definitely feel, in terms of the music scene, as a musician, that uh, the place to go is America. That hasn't changed at all. Um, I do feel like people are more skeptical at the moment, but I feel like people were always skeptical. I don't know anybody that sold the America that was like bought by the American dream here, other than the idea of like getting becoming big and famous, like the star dream. Um, but most people, I mean, I was so surprised how many people here thought Americans are superficial or like just didn't at all have this, per I, I perceive America even still through all of this uh, tension and, and, and pressure cooking tension that's happening at the moment. I still perceive it as a place where like the interaction between humans is much, much more connected than a lot of places in the world. Like you can go and sit on a train and having meaningful conversation with a person and never see that person again. And that it still is, uh, can be meaningful and beautiful and, and have no need for anything more than that. Where I feel like here in Europe and in Switzerland specifically that like these smaller forms of interaction or like community action are not uh, culturally imprinted here. So I am always surprised that most people don't value this aspect of American culture, this kind of, there is this like communal culture of, of welcomingness in, in a way. I mean, of course, we're talking about this great divide at the same time, but mm -hmm. every time I go back to Philadelphia, I feel like I could live here. This is a great city. Everybody's so welcoming and you meet, they talk people and, you know, like they're really even in Philadelphia, I think is actually a really super good image of a city that's very segregated, very many different cultures, like class differences, and that yet there's like a rallying togetherness in this place. Andrew? Um, the, the image of Philadelphia strikes me because, in this context, in what you were saying, Brandy, because um, I moved to Philadelphia from California in the late 80s, And I heard from several people in Philly something like, "You're so Californian. You're 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 so open to people, and people on the East Coast are so closed compared to Californians." Um, and then I, a few years later, moved to Berlin, and I got the same line in Berlin: "You're so American. You're so open to people." 
uh, and people in Germany are so closed, right? Uh, and precisely open in the way you were describing, Brandy, um, mm-hmm. uh, this, you know, meet somebody and tell them your life story or hear their life story and then never see them again, right? Um, and I've, uh, it struck me that there's this, what's, what's seen as an American-European or American-German, in that case, cultural divide is also a divide within the U.S., um, which one could discuss further, but I won't. <laughs> Let's leave that for some other time. But anyways, yeah. what uh, both of your words uh, make me think that there is still some hope. I mean, the, the, your hope lies with the American people, just to end this whole discussion on a positive note. I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't okay. know as if my, my hope lies with the American, but I do feel that like in general in America, I feel like people forget that America's ginormous. I mean, this country is so big, you know, Switzerland has 8 million people and like the city of New York has more people in it than the entire of Switzerland. So I feel like, of course, it's very logical that not everybody's going to get along and that not everybody's going to have the same beliefs. And I think it's, it's a, it's a, it does America, it does the United, excuse me, it does the United States. I also want to stop saying America. It does the United States a disservice to say, uh, this this massive land of so many different people of so many different cultures uh, is only at rift with each other because there are pools in and all over the U.S. where where I feel like these things do exist where people do get along. I mean, I feel like Philadelphia is a really great place for this, or like in New York City or these metropole areas. And I'm sure that there's also suburban areas, which is not my my forte, but I feel mm-hmm. like I'm sure there's suburban areas where like these these different beliefs have found a way to coexist with each other, the, you know, the, the extremities of these poles, at least I, I, yeah, I mean, I feel I definitely see this in New York city for sure. And so I, in that sense, I have hope because it already exists, you know, but I don't know if I have hope for the whole of the United States. I feel like it might split soon. Hmm. Andrew. Um, I'm reminded of of something I read in the 90s by Kwame Anthony Apaya, who was writing about the, the, the culture wars at the time and around the term multiculturalism. And he grew up in Ghana and moved to the U.S. And he said one of the things in the U.S. that struck him was that everybody talked about it as a, a multicultural society, but it didn't seem multicultural to him at all. All of his students had the same cultural references in the 90s, right? Uh, they were all listening to the same music and watching the same TV shows and watching the same uh, movies. And if they didn't listen to them or watch them, they still knew how to talk about them. And one thing that crosses my mind as I ponder that is that uh, there is uh, perhaps, yeah, he saw, he saw America as a monoculture in the 90s. And there is perhaps a tendency in the internet age for that kind of monoculture to start to fracture in various ways as people split off into their own their own worlds of what they're what music they're listening to and what what uh, films and television shows they're watching. Um, but I I would still hope that there's there's things that people can find ways to talk about with each other, um, be it. Uh, Beyonce or or Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or uh, a popular TV series, or even politics. Let's hope for that. The U.S. in October 2020, just before an election of 
a president, let's put it that way. Thanks a lot for being part of this show. Brandy Butler, contemporary arts performer and activist. Thank you. And Andrew Shields, um, employee at the English Literature Department of the University of Basel, where you also live. My name is Eric Facon.